The Guardian. Have you always wanted to write a novel, a history, a short story, your epitaph? Want to know how successful authors do it? It's all in a new Guardian book. I'll tell you more at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we look at all the latest fallout from the Jimmy Savile scandal. Forget about the first hundred days. Has there ever been a tougher first few weeks for a new BBC Director General? Plus, Rupert Murdoch hits out at the celebrity scumbags and tells unhappy shareholders, if you don't like it, lump it. And Celebrity Bake Off has its cake and eats it as it seals its spot as BBC Two's biggest rating show. Well, other than Top Gear, that is. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined this week by Paul Robinson, Media Talk regular and all-round consultant. Paul, thanks for coming. Always nice to be here, John. And to my right, because that's important on an audio uh, podcast of this sort, is Vicky Frost, The Guardian's TV and radio editor. Vicky, looking, uh, looking wonderful today, I must say. <laughs> Thank you, John. Is that sexist? Um, no, not sexist, just a bit weird. Right, jolly yeah. good. <laughs> good to hit the ground weirdly. I mean running. Uh, well, we start this week, uh, where else, but with Jimmy Savile. The revelations just keep on coming, not just about Savile, but allegations which have also been levelled at other BBC presenters. Some dead, some still alive. Along with widespread revulsion at what Savile did, the BBC has also been roundly condemned for being too slow to act or failing to act at all. Paul, we, we touched on this in, in last week's podcast of course but uh, what's the latest what have you made of all the latest developments well I mean I think the first thing to say is that I was at the BBC for eight years and I didn't really recognize any of these sort of uh, these comments in terms of you know the way that the culture of the BBC I don't think the culture of the BBC is fundamentally flawed I think that you know clearly the way in which people conducted themselves in life 20 30 years ago was different to now we're much more correct than we were 30 years ago and the BBC you know will have changed alongside society I do feel a bit sorry for George Entwistle actually I mean I think um, you could argue maybe he was a shade slow to get off the mark but having got off the mark he did issue a decent apology he did acknowledge the seriousness of this and you know for a new DG in the in the job he had many many other things to worry about and he wasn't expecting this banana skin to come along um, clearly uh, we've now got two uh, meeting inquiries set up with with two people heading them who I think have got credibility and respect and what the BBC does need now is it needs to have a, a solid root and branch inquiry that will actually lead to conclusions and actions if necessary that will keep the BBC clean because because you know, the BBC is a great organisation. This is actually not doing its credibility any good at all. Yes, there are certainly no shortage of inquiries now. No, no sort of inquiries, and rightly so. I mean, but I think what matters is they've got real teeth, that they really dig into it, they really deal with all the issues. Obviously, the police are going to be involved too, because I imagine there are going to be criminal prosecutions. There will be people, I'm sure, who are still alive, who know things or maybe were you know, involved with Savile. They need to be dealt with, and then the BBC needs to move on. Vicky, what have you made of the, the criticism of the BBC and the media, the way it's handled this and um, allegations that it, that it didn't do enough to sort of seize on these um, uh, allegations in the first place? Well, I think they're right, actually. I, I'm sort of mystified by why the BBC was so slow to act. I mean, it kind of just went into denial to begin with, you know, and it's, you know, when you saw the story and you just thought, what are you doing? You know, you need to respond to this. You can't just stonewall on it. You've really got to respond to it. And they just took forever to kind of realise the importance of the story, it felt to me, and the possible implications. And so you've ended up with this situation where Savile's on the front page, but also actually so is the BBC. And 
it shouldn't be there. You know, it, I don't think the story really is the BBC. I mean, arguably, it's a culture that was within the BBC, but I'm not sure that I think it was within the BBC and nowhere else, you know. But the BBC has now is basically at the centre of this storm and people who want to use this story as an opportunity to attack the BBC are certainly doing so because they just didn't move fast enough. The apology wasn't soon enough, the inquiry wasn't soon enough. It was just really bad management, I think. You say that critics of the BBC will seize on this to sort of beat it. And uh, I mean, that's certainly true, Paul, of The Sun. I mean, I think the BBC's rarely out of The Sun, says um, leader column at the moment, uh, whether it's uh, John Humphreys apparently not taking it seriously enough on Today or more revelations. I mean, there, there were allegations in John Simpson's biography of a children's presenter he talked about as um, being guilty of abuse back in the sort of 1950s and 60s. And that they said that was another example of the BBC not doing enough to, you know, to, to crack down and, and ask questions. Well, if you wind back three months, of course, it was the News Corporation that was actually in the news and everything was about uh, Sky and Murdoch and so on and they must be now uh, maybe relieved that the attention has now turned to the BBC. It's maybe not a big surprise that News Corporation is using the opportunity to have a go at the BBC. Um, I think you need to take that with a pinch of salt. The Daily Mail too are also uh, doing the same thing and the number of people have been named who uh, it looks a shade maybe as though people are coming out of the woodwork now because it's safe to do so because they feel they can. Not to say there aren't serious complaints to be dealt with, there clearly, clearly are. I mean, Vicky, you and I, we watch TV and listen to radio rather than work in it but um, it's it sounds like a, a wonderful world of light entertainment. We had, um, I don't know if you heard Judy Finnegan, who was on Five Live um, this week, and she was saying how, uh, I think it was in the 70s, possibly a little bit later, uh, a producer at Granada, um, a male producer at Granada, would, would regularly, uh, routinely expose himself to, to women uh, in the corridor. And uh, it was just seen as, you know, a bit of, bit of lighthearted, a bit of, bit of fun and games. What kind of atmosphere existed uh, in these sort of, you know, in these sort of places in the 70s and 80s? It's astonishing, isn't it, actually? Because you kind of think, God, if that happened at work, imagine if that happened at work. It would be unbelievable for that to happen in the office. Of course we are the Guardian, but, you know, even any office, I think. I mean, and not to say at all that uh, sexual harassment doesn't go on in workplaces. It absolutely still does. But sort of on this kind of scale and in this kind of way... It is sort of quite astonishing to hear those tales, I think. I mean, there were hijinxes at Radio 1 on the roadshow. I mean, you know, you'd get DJs who'd go into other people's rooms and put fish in their bed or, you know, they'd, they'd swap the numbers on the doors if people were going into the wrong bedrooms. That, those sort of things used to happen, which I think is just high spirits and hijinks. I never saw anything in the office that was inappropriate in, in my years at the BBC. Because, Paul, you were at Radio 1, what, so late 80s, early 90s? Uh, yeah, I was at Radio 1 for six years from late 80s to early 90s and at the BBC until 1997. So, you know, um, it's, it's after the Savile era but it's still obviously 15 20 years ago you know it was a a culture where people had fun but I mean no one dropping their trousers it wasn't it, we didn't have that let alone anything you know which was illegal or, or sexual harassment it just didn't happen honestly it didn't I didn't see it were they were they big fish in beds uh Not sort of swordfish I mean, I, I, talking I, sort I know, of they, were, they were big fish yeah the, the bed was very wet More from Paul and Vicky later, but I'm joined by Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech, to look at all things press. But before we do, just a, a final word, or inevitably a final few words, on uh, the whole Savile scandal, Dan. Next week, we've got George Entwistle up before MPs, and also possibly the BBC turning its attention to the whole thing with Panorama, maybe. 
Well, the panorama situation is very interesting because you know you could argue, you know, as regards to the failed Newsnight's investigation, failed Newsnight investigation at Savile, it's more likely than not, I think, even though people are really looking for a conspiracy, it's more likely than not that we're we're, we're more on the cock up front here, and there wasn't really a sort of a corporate attempt to squash the Newsnight investigation, just a misjudgment, a woeful misjudgment, I think, by Peter Rippon. But really, here with Panorama, there's so much at stake. There's so much opportunity for corporate pressure because Panorama is notionally looking into looking into the now director general and head of news and deputy head of news and what all these people knew about Newsnight. Who's editor in chief of the BBC when this program goes out? Who's sitting in the background providing advice in BBC News? And most importantly of all, who's going to decide whether this program is good enough to go to air? Because I think it's make or break whether they go out on Monday. And if the program doesn't go out on Monday, what have we got? Another scandal about programs being delayed. But if it goes out rushed and it's not very good, then I think people will be very critical. I think Panorama is suddenly in a rather somewhat invidious position. So whether Entwistle appears on Panorama, we wait and see. But we do know he will be appearing before MPs next week. Well, such an interesting sort of context to Entwistle's appearance before before Parliament. He'll be pretty well rehearsed on the answers, you know, to the questions. If uh, if Panorama doesn't go out, but if it does, it will really sort of you know uh, throw a new urgency onto proceedings and potentially make things really difficult. I mean, I mean, it is quite extraordinary when you look back on it. Not very long ago, that, you know, George Entwistle starts as DG of the BBC, and we're talking about such a benign environment for him. It's never been more benign in 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 the last decade or so. And then within you know a month month or two he's in the middle of a full-blown crisis without really much time to sort of clear his throat or, or read into the job okay well more of that next week of course at mediaguardian.co.uk also this week rupert murdoch was back in front of shareholders a news corporation's annual stockholder meeting in los angeles the last one was a memorably raucous affair with shareholders criticizing the chief executive over phone hacking lack of oversight and too much murdoch influence frankly this week's was expected to do much of the same dam but did it live up to the billing Shareholders seem to live on a different planet to the rest of us. You know, we had overnight extraordinary and fascinating story. That Rebecca Brooks's combined payoff was not the sort of you know one, two, or three million pounds that we had previously thought, but more like seven million. You know, somewhere between six and eight. One source told me a considerable sum of money. I mean, ten million dollars crudely, if you if you like to do it in American, because obviously News Corp is domiciled over there. Did this come at the annual you know annual stockholders meeting? Uh, you know, the next day, not at all. Nobody had a word to say about it. Nobody seemed to think it was egregious, or exceptional, or even worth mentioning. So what do we get instead? Well, what we did get was something quite interesting. You know, a uh, Rupert was on his absolute best behaviour. Not at all testy when he was criticised by various shareholders. Uh, lots of support from his board. It all sounded incredibly collegiate, and I, mean, I know that's how News Corp is run every day. Very unusual, very curious, and yet, nevertheless, a majority of independent shareholders voted uh, for, to have a, an independent chairman, a chairman separate from the chief executive's role. It's not something the company uh, wanted. It's not something the company voted for because Murdoch has 40% of the votes, voting shares in his own pocket, as it were, So, because um, uh, he owns them. Uh, so he has... Um, there's no danger of the company losing any votes it didn't want to lose. But, you know, symbolically, you know, again, you know, very interesting, you know, just just a sort of constant nagging pressure there uh, from investors at a sort of very macro level. So Murdoch wasn't particularly testy in L.A., but he was fairly testy on Twitter. He, uh, he had a go at uh, the uh, celebrity scumbags. Who, uh, who met up with David Cameron to talk about the uh, privacy law, which may or may not happen. Well, this has been running, this, uh, that's right, that was, uh, I think, last week, and this has sort of been running for a while. Uh, uh, every so often, the um, the real Rupert Murdoch, you know, stands up with a sort of, you know, with a, with, with a testy or entertaining sideswipe against his critics. It's rather unspun, it's, it's often fun, but I think the suggestion that, 
you know, that Charlotte Church, I think it was, uh, was it Hugh Grant? Anyway, I can't quite remember which members have hacked off. Uh, it was the Met David Cameron, but but certainly I think calling them or anyone a sort of scumbag celebrity in this context is a little bit, you know, a little bit unwise. He was sort of retracting left, right and centre, though, by the, by the middle of the week or by the end of the week. And I think he was sort of very clear to talk about how, you know, Hugh Grant really was an attentive father to his to his infant daughter and so on. And he was just, you know, wanted to be clear about that. And so I don't know. I mean, we seem to be getting sort of, you know, swipes and apologies in, in, in roughly equal measure. But it's not very smart PR. I mean, this Leveson report is coming up soon. And I think, you know, Rupert Murdoch ought to look very humble on, on, on Twitter as well, at least until the judges, had to say. The humblest tweet of his life. And uh, also this week, uh, the news that uh, Newsweek is going digital only after 80 years as a print product. What a sensational moment, I think. You know, it, it's a title everyone's heard of, and more to the point, it's still had 1.5 million uh, circulation, most of which should be through subscription. So, I mean, a lot of people are eager to sort of denounce Newsweek and say, oh, gone down mid-market where it was sort of time was the established leader and the economist was the established sort of niche player and it couldn't find room in between and I mean that's as may be but uh, you know the real reason is it had the wrong corporate structure to support it uh, it was acquired was owned by the Washington Post company it was acquired by the um, uh, you know Sidney Harmon who was in his 90s and uh, I think losing 20 million dollars a year it was merged into the Daily Beast, uh, IAC, Barry Diller vehicle, running up losses. And then there was no strong corporate parent. And when Sidney Harmon moved to the um, uh, Read Newsweek in the sky, if you will, he was unable to support it. He was unable to continue his personal support. And his family withdrew their financial support from Newsweek going forward. And at that point, you just suddenly have a major cost problem. You know, no, uh, you can't support a loss-making product without, uh, you know, a strong corporate owner. And there wasn't one in this case. So I think that's what that was really about than about a sort of significant change. And I I mean, I wonder, I don't know, but I just wonder if you'd sort of sat down and looked at Newsweek's cost model more carefully, you might have been able to come up with a, you know, a sustainable product, but with much lower editorial investment, inevitably. Okay, well, Dan Sabat, thanks very much. It's almost 10 years since Andrew Gilligan went live on the Today programme and said that the government had sexed up an intelligence report on Iraq's WMD capabilities. Listening to every word was the programme's editor, Kevin Marsh, now editor of the BBC College of Journalism. He's now written a book about the episode and the subsequent Hutton inquiry. We sent The Guardian's Tim Maybe, who used to work in the same offices at TV Centre, to meet him at the book's launch. I think that one of the weaknesses of Lord Hutton's conclusions were... He, he rushed to judgment. He decided that our journalism was very bad, our, it was shambolic, it was poor, but without hearing evidence otherwise. So, for instance, he assumed that there wasn't a script. There was. He assumed that no one had thought about Andrew Gilligan's allegations, the, the, the allegations he was intending to report. We had, I had, at some, at some considerable length. And he assumed that the story was unfounded, that there was no corroboration. He assumed that we hadn't put the story to the government. So there were a lot of assumptions that Lord Hutton made that were simply false. To be fair, the BBC didn't go to great lengths to disabuse him of these false assumptions. But in my view, he made a bit of a schoolboy error, judging that absence of evidence is evidence of absence. In other words, because he didn't hear X, Y and Z happened, he assumed that it hadn't happened, and therefore condemned the BBC's journalism in very, very strong terms, concluding eventually that the allegations that, that Andrew Gilligan reported were unfounded. Now that goes a long way beyond saying he made a mistake or he got it wrong. It's actually saying the allegations were unfounded based on what he understood our journalism to be, and I think he was quite simply wrong in that. 
and crucially, he didn't hear about it from you as to how you actually went through that editorial process. No, and I, you know, I assumed, everybody assumed that I was going to give evidence. I was the guy who'd put Andrew Gilligan on air. Because he didn't hear from me, he assumed that by some miraculous process, Andrew Gilligan had got himself on air, that it was only Andrew Gilligan who checked his story. So he'd made an awful lot of assumptions about the way we do our journalism, all of which I could have disabused him of had, uh, had I been able to give evidence. Crucially, though, and I remember that was our feeling in that newsroom the day after it happened, you do admit that you hadn't put those allegations directly to Number 10, even though the story was about how Number 10 had handled the dossier. No, we hadn't. We hadn't. We, we had made a call to the Ministry of Defence because we were bidding for them on another story, a much bigger story, incidentally, a story about the, the Royal Air Force using cluster bombs close to civilian areas in Iraq and then not quite telling the full truth about it. So, I mean, it was, that was quite a big story, a much bigger story, in my view, actually, than, than Andrew Gilligan's story. So, because the MOD is responsible for arms proliferation, it was in, obviously involved in the preparation of the dossier. I said, I might have been wrong to say this, but at the time it seemed to me the right thing to do. I said, let's extend the bid for the MOD minister to take in the allegations that Andrew is intending to report. So, Yes, we didn't go to Downing Street, but the truth is we never did. We always bid for the minister who was relevant to the story. Now, usually, if Downing Street wanted to get involved, because Alistair Campbell had centralised the, uh, uh, the information, Downing Street would call us back very often within minutes if they wanted to become involved. So I'm not pushing the responsibility onto them, but the idea that we didn't tell anyone in government that we were intending to report this story is simply nonsense. Now, who do you think didn't call you? Was it the BBC or was it Hutton? Well, Hutton said at the beginning of the inquiry that he and he alone would judge who should appear as a witness. There is also a rule, it's actually the law with inquiries like this, that if the presiding uh, person, in this case a judge, is intended to criticise any individual, he informs that individual of the criticisms he intends to make, and those criticisms then can then be uh, rebutted or not in the second part of the inquiry. That's actually the way these inquiries should run. Now, I find it mystifying that uh, Lord Hutton intended to make the criticisms he made of me without thinking it was necessary to put those criticisms to me beforehand. But you're going as far as suggesting that he was bending the law? No, not bending the law. I, I, I think he probably, I don't know, he probably thought that this was a battle that was being fought at the highest levels in the BBC and the government and that therefore the DG and the Director of Communications and Strategy for the government was the level at which this should be pitched and therefore mere minions like me lower down the, the batting order, you know, we, we didn't pay much attention to us. But I mean, you know, I was the guy who put Andrew Gilligan on air. I have found it gripping going through all the details of how you had to deal with, as you call it, the fifth floor where the guys who did go up and give evidence used to live. And I have been surprised that you allowed yourself to be put down about the fact that you made a distinction between the live sleepy broadcast that Andrew Gilligan made at 6.07 on that day in May and the difference between what you then made sure he got back to, which was the script you'd agreed. You did suggest at one stage we should just apologise for that and it might be all over. Well, yes, but, it, it, you know, it, it was much, much more complicated than that. I, I mean, Downing Street was not complaining about the thing that I thought was wrong in the, in the, in the first broadcast. It was complaining about a whole host of, of different things. And you might say that we'd all got into our trenches into our silos by this stage but but I knew from bitter experience eight years of dealing eight or nine years of dealing with with Alistair Campbell and, and the new Labour media machine that you had to be very very careful about what you conceded 
apologised for or whatever. And so our focus was on the actual complaints that Downing Street and Campbell were making. And we, we replied to all of those. What we weren't going to do was to say, oh, by the way, I know you're complaining about X, but we think we might have got Y a bit wrong. You know, so it took three weeks for Alistair Campbell to actually pinpoint what was going to be the main thrust of his complaint and what went on to be the whole issue that went into Hutton and so on and so forth. Now, this was not unusual new Labour behaviour to fling a whole series of complaints at us and see, see if something would stick. This had been the routine for something like eight or nine years. This didn't feel any different. It buzzed around for a few days and then it died away. We went to lunch at Downing Street with Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair on the 12th of June. In the middle of all of this, not a word was mentioned. It wasn't raised at all. So we naturally had assumed that, that the whole thing was sliding away like most similar rows had done in the past. And therefore, on my mind, was, yeah, I'm going to have to bollock Gilligan over this at some point, but I'm certainly not going to concede it to Alistair Campbell when it's not something he's complained about. A lot of colleagues at the time say, the trouble is, the, tr- the story was true, we didn't handle it right. Do you accept that? I think, well, I know, with hindsight, of course. Did everything seem the right thing to do at the time? I think it probably did, but with hindsight, I mean, clearly, Andrew should not have been allowed on air, live, with a story. But given that that's the core part of the job for a Today reporter, you know, that's quite some condemnation. I'd asked him to write a script, I'd looked over his notes, I'd gone through what I thought the allegations were, I'd corroborated them with my own uh, checks and sources. It's difficult to see how short of treating this like a panorama, you know, which is an eight-week turnaround, I was in daily journalism, it's difficult to see what else I could have done. Other people can make a judgment that I should have done more, what have you, but at the time that seemed the right thing to do. One rumour I'm glad to now see come true is that you and John Humphreys had, the week or so before, had lunch with the head of MI6 and his deputy, which was one reason why you believed the story. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I mean, we were having lunch about... This had been arranged for months beforehand. This was something that MI6 wanted to do. They wanted to be a little more open with certain certain journalists. But there were a couple of striking things that, that Sir Richard Dearlove and his deputy said. Uh, you know, one of which seemed to contradict the central message of the dossier and indeed the central message of the whole case for war. And that's to say that, he, that Iraq wasn't the main threat that, that, that we face. Now, for the head of MI6 to be saying that to you when over here you've got the Prime Minister saying, no, look, hang on, it's the intelligence that's persuaded me. There was a bit of a disconnect there. But like many of the conversations that you have with an editor, uh, when you're an editor, you, you file it away and you, you, know, you never know when you're going to need it in the future. It just happened to be quite useful when this story came along and it seemed consistent when Andrew uh, told us about the allegations of Dr Kelly seemed to chime with the, with the two uh, the two things seemed to chime together and that was a very good reason one of many reasons why I thought we should broadcast these allegations But one government minister John Reid picked up this expression rogue elements yeah, in the intelligence services. Do you think there was something of a little political battle you well, unfortunately got stuck no, in the middle there, of? No, there, there, you know, there, there was a battle with, with MI6, we know that. You know, MI6 were unhappy about the idea of sharing intelligence with, uh, with the British public. MI6 took the very traditional view that intelligence was advice to ministers. Ministers should then construct their own arguments, but not by saying, look, here it is. Waving, waving intelligence here, you know, here's, here's what's persuaded me. So, there, there, you know, there, there was a battle going on there. But I think, to be honest, I think John Reid was, was just sort of just pushing at a door to see if it came open. Would you accept that this 
ended up as possibly one of the biggest upsets for the BBC in its history. Sort of. I mean, it was, you know, the, the immediate effects were dramatic. You know, we lost a chairman, we lost a DG, uh, Andrew Gilligan was asked to resign. You know, we had, a, uh, we had the Neil Committee looking at BBC standards and so on and so forth. And for a while, I think possibly, you know, we all felt a little bit kind of serious, a little bit more serious than normal. But you have to remember that public opinion started running against Hutton almost straight away. You know, trust in the BBC went up, trust in the government went down. And I think that, you know, the idea that I, as the editor of the Today programme, was going to go to John Humphreys and say, now look, John, you know, because of this Hutton thing, I really need you to back off now and just go soft on politicians. That wasn't going to happen. He'd He'd have thrown me out the window if I'd have said that, and quite rightly too. But how, in a way, did you escape getting censure in some form? Because your predecessor, Rod Liddell, had to leave the BBC for a far lesser matter. Well, no, I mean, he, he completely forgot about impartiality in his, in his Guardian column, and he was, he was asked to choose between his Guardian column, which was not impartial, and being a BBC editor, which, which uh, was impartial. No, I mean, there was, as I describe in the book, there was an internal disciplinary process, which is slightly sort of shamefaced, um, which went over all the evidence again, and at which, for the first time, I was able to say, look, actually, this is what happened. And that process exonerated me completely. So, I mean, there was no, uh, there was no question of, of any censure. There is something I've noticed since working for a newspaper after leaving the BBC about those kind of stories that you get on the front pages, which is that newspaper journalists seem to be pretty freely able to use unnamed sources at great length. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not a thing that broadcasters like doing. I mean, it is the biggest difference between broadcast journalism and, and, and written journalism that, that, by and large, you want everything on the record, if you can. Um, reporting a source is, is very much second best. You have to do it very often with politics, defence stories, intelligence stories. Reporting a single source, I see more awkward, reporting a single source who wants to remain anonymous, that's right at the far end of, I think, what's acceptable to broadcasting. But you're quite right, in a newspaper, single anonymous sources are pretty well par for the course. That was Kevin Marsh talking to Tim Maybe. The book, Stumbling Over Truth, is available now from The Guardian Bookshop. We're back with Vicky and Paul, and it's time now for a look at all things small screen. Now, I don't mean your smartphone. Well, I might mean your smartphone, but I'm generally using the old reference to, uh, you know, TV, the goggle box, the thing in the corner. Anyway, uh, I hope that was smooth enough. Vicky, uh, this week was the uh, climax to the third series of the show I um, uh, love to loathe, The uh, Great British Bake Off. Uh, And it turns out it's bigger than ever. Uh, with 6.5 million viewers, BBC Two's biggest show apart from Top Gear. Well, yes, that's an interesting sort of uh, just a position, isn't it? Basically, yeah. so the final this this week of Bake Off, 6.5 million, I think, the overnight, wasn't it? Which is astonishing number of people for BBC Two, and it's interesting how this show, you know, it sort of started its first time out. It was a slightly odd thing. It, it didn't quite make sense. It, it didn't... Well, you think it is. 6.5 million other people cannot be wrong, John, including me, so definitely can't be wrong. But the first time out, it was a bit of an odd thing. Didn't entirely hang together. And then they sort of slightly revamped it for two, season two. It did very well. You know, ratings grew. And then ratings have continued to grow all the way through this. It's fascinating as a piece of basically 
pleasant TV. Everybody is charming to each other. Ordinary people go into this weird tent. That's slightly old conceit of the show, actually. But they go into this tent, which is either very hot or often quite windy. I once saw someone trying to sift some salt into a bowl or something, and it just literally blew away. And I just thought, studio, get a studio. But <laughs> and so oh, I've missed out. I wish I watched it now. <laughs> See, if you watch it carefully, there's an awful lot to enjoy. But people are pleasant. Ordinary people bake amazing things and are charming to each other and supportive and you can learn from it and everybody is nice it's amazing that that's 6.5 million people say that sort of television they want to watch I think it's a really lovely thing I would never have chosen to watch it but I came across it and I was gripped and I don't know really why first of all I suppose I was amazed to see that Mary Berry is still alive because uh, my mum used to have Mary Berry cake mixes and I had no idea who this Mary Berry was but she's there she is Mary Berry but I think you're right what's quite great about it it's very sort of gentle it's very British it's also got you know young contestants as well as old it's not just middle-aged ladies with sort of blue rinse there's you know the guy who won's a 23 year old student who won but I mean it's just very gentle and and it was incredible seeing people making you know buildings out of bits of sponge and pastry and and, and goodness knows what it's just very uh, sort of calming I think and you sort of think yeah you know life's good you know there's all this stuff going on in the world and here we are worrying about who can bake the best cake fantastic yeah I think it's one of those things that you know everybody can bake can you know to a certain extent I think mine are always flat I think well, I, yeah, I, you know. I are think you, are you a born baker, can, John? No one can bake. I can Carry bake. So <laughs> you can bake. In this room, I can bake. But um, I, so I think, but I think it's, it's not that difficult a thing to do, baking. You know, you've got a recipe. If you follow it properly, you will get a good cake at the end. You're both that's looking at me with always, faces that suggest that's not true. Dips, dips in the middle. It's always got uh, a soggy thing in the middle. That's because you're either putting too much raising agent in so it rises and then falls, ah. or you're opening the to oven open the oven door too, too soon. There you go. Okay. Frost baking tips. QED. <laughs> you're listening to Food Talk from The Guardian. <laughs> I thought also, though, what was interesting about this series was actually I thought the final was not without controversy. For my mind, I think last week I sort of uh, was blowing the trumpet for Brendan and I was a bit sad to see him not win, actually, uh, because I... I thought he was the better baker, really. Which is the older guy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think lots of people sort of think, oh, you know, John, who did win, very good baker, but maybe not as consistent as Brendan. See how nice this show is? That you're still nice about it, even when you're slightly... John had more flair, didn't he? Don't you think he had a bit more to him? I mean, Brendan was very consistent and sort of every, every week did well. But there was nothing stunning, was there, with him? No, that's not true. Do you think so? He was amazing. Oh, if, no. If anyone was going to make me a cake, I would make it but be What Brendan. about James? And you're not a fan of James? Well, James the Morton? thing is with James, he just needed to do a bit more preparation, didn't okay. he? You know, he had that sort of, you know, it's fine, I'll experiment. But actually, it sort of comes across a bit cocky in a final. And also, why try and make five cakes when you need to make one? Well, that's enough baking. Uh, now, I didn't watch Bake Off, but I am watching Strictly Come Dancing, which is... Uh, Frank, enthralling me to a, to a peculiar extent that I'm beginning to question myself. Uh, but I, th- I think <laughs> I was very excited about it. I spent not just because I was in South Wales with the in-laws, but um, I was looking forward to it all week. And then they didn't want to watch it. So I watched it alone with um, Hattie the Cat. But it was fantastic. Great stuff. Brilliant uh, lineup of guests, I think. Really good um, casting, isn't it? Yeah. Really, really good casting, I think. Apart from the chap of Daybreak. Yeah, I think the Olympians are slightly the bit that make the difference for, for Strictly. And they've kind of got that Olympic halo effect. And even though Victoria Pendleton isn't actually very good, um, I still think there's that kind of gloss to it all. Um, and I'm really pleased to see Strictly, you know, really kind of beating X Factor and really 
feeling like it's really on top of its game this year. I mean, I know it's kind of got its controversies around Denise Van Outen and, you know, her stage school dance training. But, you know, to be honest, so many of those women, well, not just women, actually, you know, so many, anyone who's basically been through drama school is going to have had some dance training during drama school. So I sort of feel everyone's getting their knickers in the twist about Denise Van Outen when they could just as easily be doing it about Kimberly from Girls Aloud. So it feels, you know, I don't know, that's my thought. John's doing a face that suggests maybe that's not true. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm making this face because I'm about to go Paul. I know you're an X-Factor man, but do you like Strictly as well? I am watching Strictly this year, much more than I did last year, and I agree with you. The cast list is fantastic. Michael Bourne, um, great. Jerry Hall in particular. Well, yeah, I felt a bit sorry for Johnny Bourne, actually, because, I mean, you know, that dance-off with Richard, I think, uh, you know, Johnny, Johnny went, and uh, yeah, anyway. But the point is, I think the judges are more entertaining than on the X-Factor, and I think Darcy has proved to be a really good uh, find. She oh, gives yeah. fantastic... <laughs> fantastic uh, feedback you know I mean I really like the fact she gives the people tips you know this is what you can do next week it feels like it's really positive but the judges are, are incredibly entertaining I think on Strictly you know far more than they are on X Factor the other thing is I just love to watch and see whether Bruce gets from one link to the end of the link you know is he going to get there because he's, sort of, he's getting a bit old now he still gets there but you do wonder is Bruce going to sort of pop it during the show <laughs> well that's a slightly unsavoury reason to watch Paul no no I think it's entertaining you know because I'm wondering because <laughs> you can tell Bruce is suddenly his eyes go sort of starey and he's obviously lost his way and then he, then he finds it again and sort of gets back to where he should be it's, it's hilarious well Bruce if you want to address those concerns you're welcome to come on next week's pod I know you're a listener um, but I have to say Vicky the, the Sunday results show I felt rather a bit lacklustre and I thought it kind of let down the Saturday show not just because Bruce isn't no there, Bruce that doesn't see. help yeah well, I don't think No Bruce is an entirely bad thing, actually. I'm oh. sort of, I'm not in the Bruce Forsyth fan club at all, actually. I find him quite annoying to watch, nothing to do with his age, just his general annoyingness, I think. It's sort of um, wishing him ill will and Paul's looking out for it. <laughs> I'm looking out for his health. I'm worried about him. He rests on Sunday, does he? He needs, his, needs to lie down I, I, in the no, darkened room. Um, actually, you know, that is the thing. That yeah. He was finding it all a bit much, so he didn't do the Sundays as well. Um, I, yeah, I, the Sunday show to me always feels slightly an afterthought, whereas X Factor sort of really managed to make a, a, a sort of a really good job of their Sunday mm. show, even though it is an interminable recap, really, with loads of adverts. They still need, seem to manage to make it a thing whereas Strictly it just feels a bit like well we finished filming that and then we filmed this and you know and here it is and see you then next week it's, it's sort of got no impact I think which is a shame uh, well Vicky we've got time for one more TV show this week I can't decide whether to talk about Downton or Homeland or Grand Design so I feel like I should leave it to you as the TV editor well I think we should talk about Downton because oh, it's good the one I didn't see carry on <laughs> well because last week there was so there were no previews of Downton last week which we you know I was sort of a bit surprised by. So I, I was watching live with uh, everybody else. And then suddenly they bloody kill Sybil. I mean, obviously it was signposted, you know, madly from a thousand miles away. Where as soon as there were two doctors and she had swollen ankles and they were arguing. And, and there was that wobbly signpost. Lord, <laughs> yeah, well, a bit. And Lord Grantham was going, no, 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 I'm terribly posh. Let's be polite rather than worry too much about my daughter's health. Uh, so it was ridiculously signposted, but it was still, you know, a proper big, oh my goodness, plot point. And it did get everyone talking about Downton again. Everyone's been talking about it. Everybody's interested again. After what's been a quite up and down series, I think. I think it started very strongly and then it's sort of just been rushing through... Uh, solving problems it seems so it's almost got it it's almost sort of problem solved itself to a standstill so that they had to get rid of Sybil to have something good happen 
And you don't often get those kind of, oh my God, TV moments these days in the, in the age of the spoiler and everything else. Exactly. And I, I mean, I think the fact that they didn't leak it at all. I mean, I've really not heard anything of it. And they didn't give out any discs. And, you know, they said to me, oh no, it's still in the edit, when obviously they just didn't want to give it to us. I thought that was really well handled, actually, because then there was, that you could feel that collective intake of breath. <gasps> When it's up against Homeland as well, I think maybe it did need to do something like that. But equally, it does slightly smack of desperation. It's a bit like when you start killing off the core family, that's a bit saying we're out of ideas here. The entail thing, that's kind of disappeared. We've sort of solved that. Everyone's just in this house and now, you know, now we've got to kind of do something massive. So I don't know, it feels like, I mean, and Bates, whatever that storyline is, I'm so bored with it. I just don't care at all. I don't care about him. I don't want to go to that terrible prison set anymore. You know, that's sort of, I think, not gripping people. So it's, yeah, it's slightly, where does it go from here? I mean, unless it's just going to kill them all off sort of one by one. I don't know. What a way to go. Reminds me of the Colbys, I think. Was that right when the, the big massacre in the Moldovan church? Absolutely, yeah. And rightly so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad Paul was watching with me. Well, you know, not with me, but uh, at the same time in about 1987, I think that was. Anyway, well, that's enough TV for now, but it's the moment Eddie Mayer's been waiting for. It's the Media Monkey Quiz. Uh, now, question number one, folks. Um, fingers on the non-existent buzzers this week because we're in a different studio. Uh, more than one studio. Get us. Who is Foking Off from Radio 2? Mike Harding. Mike Harding. Paul, tell us about this. Well, this is uh, Mike Harding, who's been hosting the Radio 2 Folk programme for, I think, 15 years. Um, and controller Bob Shannon has said, thank you, Mike. Um, it's the end of your shift. And he's put Mark Radcliffe in to replace him. What did you make of that? Well, do you know, I think Mike Harding complaining is really doing himself uh, a disservice because Mike Harding has been great. He's done a really good job. But look, it's Bob Shannon's job to decide when it's time to call it quits and bring somebody else in. Mark Radcliffe is a fantastic broadcaster. He knows a lot about folk. He'll do a good job. You know, I think Mike should go gracefully. Things change. You know, you can't be in the same slot forever. So, you know, Bob's doing the right thing for Radio 2, I'm sure. Question number two. This is a numbers question. So if you don't know it, you can guess. How many people watched Felix Baumgartner fall to earth live on YouTube? Four million. Four million. Frost? I think higher. I'm going to say six. Six. Well, you're right. It was more than eight million. Oh. I'm guessing not too much more than eight million because that would be nine million. Can, but I it's half a point. Can I have half a point? <laughs> Paul, for four million. Yeah, minus one for speaking out of turn. Um, but Paul, do you think this, um, I mean, we're watching TV, uh, well, maybe I'll you, Vicky, we're watching TV in, in different ways than we used to, of course, but I mean, uh, 8 million, global audience of 8 million is, uh, you know, not as much as Watch Downton just in the UK, but it is a bit of a pointer to, towards the way we're going to be watching this sort of global event in the future. Yeah, I think so. And and also perhaps it points to the fact that when, when it was sort of on a Sunday afternoon, wasn't it? 7.18pm, I think it started, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or finished, possibly. Can I tell us the exact time, please? <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, it, maybe it's that thing of sort of uh, watching it on a phone or a tablet or wherever you are. I think, you know, maybe that's sort of... It's that kind of thing of wanting to be part of a live experience when traditional broadcast maybe isn't an option for you. It, it is interesting, I think. I know it's not a big figure globally, but I still think it's quite significant. OK, well, question number three. Which newspaper uh, broke into profit last year for the first time in three years, making more than £1 million? London Evening the Standard. Standard. Uh, oh, that's, that's like a dead heat. 
Um, but Paul, this is interesting. I think it's well, it's, it's only in 2009 it was losing, um, I think, the best part of £30 million, pounds, I think, estimates at least, when it was still paid for. It goes free, and within three years, it's, it's making a profit. It's quite a remarkable success story. It's a remarkable success story. I think at the time, uh, we weren't as confident as uh, that, that it would be successful. It shows that the move to go free was absolutely right. Massive increase in circulation. Products continue to be very good, I think. That's the important point. Um, it is it is red, and, and our advertisers have supported it. I mean, it's a fantastic... Uh, example of of the the change in strategy from cover price to free as means of sorting, supporting a business and and doing a good job. So you know, well done, uh, great result, great stuff. Well, thanks for that. I think the final scores: Paul one hundred and four, Vicky ninety eight. So it's pretty close on the quiz. <laughs> uh, well done both. My thanks to Dan, Paul, and Vicky. Please leave your comments about this week's show on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. Alternatively, you can tweet me at John Plunkett one four nine. Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Hi, I'm Simon Hattonstone. I'm a Guardian journalist, and I occasionally write books that are not read by many people. Let me tell you about some of the great advice from those who really know how to do it. Top name authors that you can read in a new Guardian book called Write. It's brilliant. Funny, perverse, bonkers and wise. If it sounds like writing, then I rewrite, says Elmore Leonard. There's an enright for despairing writers. Remember, the first 12 years are the worst. So, don't put off that dream of winning the Booker Prize any longer. Get inspired by our new Guardian book, Write. You can get yours for half price, £6.50, using promo code PODCAST. To order, visit guardian.co dot uk slash bookshop anytime up to the end of October. <laughs> <laughs>